You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years. And Yahweh said to him, You are old and advanced in years, and there remains yet much land to possess. This is the land that yet remains. All the regions of the Philistines and all those of the Geshurites, from the Shihor, which is east of Egypt, northward to the boundary of Ekron, it is counted as Canaanite. There are five rulers of the Philistines, those of Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron, and those of the Avim, in the south, all the land of the Canaanites, and Mira, which belongs to the Sidonians, to Aphek, to the boundary of the Amorites, and the land of the Gebelites, and all Lebanon, toward the sunrise, from Baal Gad, below Mount Hermon, to Lebohamath, all the inhabitants of the hill country, from Lebanon, to Mizraphoth, Maim, even all the Sidonians, I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel. Only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance, as I have commanded you. Now therefore divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and half the tribe of Manasseh. With the other half of the tribe of Manasseh, the Reubenites and the Gadites received their inheritance, which Moses gave them, beyond the Jordan eastward, as Moses the servant of Yahweh gave them. From Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and the city that is in the middle of the valley, and all the tableland of Medaba, as far as Dibon, and all the cities of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, as far as the boundary of the Ammonites, and Gilead, and the region of the Geshurites, and the Maacathites, and all Mount Hermon, and all Bashan, to Salakah, all the kingdom of Og in Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth, and in Edrei. He alone was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. These Moses had struck and driven out. Yet the people of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites or the Maacathites, but Geshur, Maacath, dwell in the midst of Israel to this day. To the tribe of Levi alone, Moses gave no inheritance. The offerings by fire to Yahweh, God of Israel, are their inheritance, as he said to him. And Moses gave an inheritance to the tribe of the people of Reuben, according to their clans. So their territory was from Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and the city that is in the middle of the valley, and all the tableland by Medeba, with Heshbon and all its cities that are in the tableland, Dibon and Bamoth Baal, and Beth Baal Meon, and Jehaz, and Kedemoth, and Mephaeth, and Kiriathim, and Sibma, and Zereth Shahar, on the hill of the valley, and Beth Peor, and the slopes of Pisgah, and Beth Jeshimoth, that is, all the cities of the tableland, and all the kingdom of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, whom Moses defeated with the leaders of Midian, Evi, and Rechem, and Zur, and Hur, and Reba, the princes of Sihon, who lived in the land. Balaam also, the son of Beor, the one who practiced divination, was killed with the sword by the people of Israel, among the rest of their slain. And the border of the people of Reuben was the Jordan as a boundary, 
This was the inheritance of the people of Reuben, according to their clans, with their cities and villages. Moses gave an inheritance also to the tribe of Gad, to the people of Gad, according to their clans. Their territory was Jazer, and all the cities of Gilead, and half the land of the Ammonites, to Aror, which is east of Rabbah, and from Heshbon to Ramoth Mizpeh, and Betonim, and from Mahainaim to the territory of Debir, and in the valley Beth Haram, Beth Nimrah, Succoth, and Zaphon, the rest of the kingdom of Sihon, king of Heshbon, having the Jordan as a boundary, to the lower end of the Sea of Chinnereth, eastward beyond the Jordan, this is the inheritance of the people of Gad, according to their clans, with their cities and villages. And Moses gave an inheritance to the half-tribe of Manasseh. It was allotted to the half-tribe of the people of Manasseh, according to their clans. Their region extended from Mahanaim through all Bashan, the whole kingdom of Og, king of Bashan, and all the towns of Jer, which are in Bashan, sixty cities, and half Gilead, and Ashtaroth, and Edre, the cities of the kingdom of Og in Bashan. These were allotted to the people of Machir, the son of Manasseh, for the half of the people of Machir, according to their clans. These are the inheritances that Moses distributed in the plains of Moab, beyond the Jordan, east of Jericho. But to the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. Yahweh God of Israel is their inheritance, just as he said to them. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 691 of this podcast. Today is Sunday, August 20th, 2023. That was a reading of Joshua chapter 13 in the Old Testament. And let's do a quick overview on it. Let's talk about some themes in this chapter and what to make of it. Well, first of all, you have this business of the promised land that was promised by Yahweh God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants forever. God promised to Abraham, who was advanced in years, he and his wife both, when God said he would make of Abraham's offspring a great nation. Many people would descend from Abraham. Abraham laughed and asked, how can this be? How is that going to work? <laughs> how is that going to happen? I don't understand, basically. I don't understand how that's possible. That's not possible, actually, based on what I know of old men and old women like me and my wife. That was basically where Abraham was coming from. Sarah laughed also and was called out on it because the character of her laugh must have been a bit different. But then maybe the character of her laugh was of a piece with the kind of attitude that would lie and say, oh, no, I didn't laugh. Oh, but you did laugh because that's how she responded when she was asked, why did you laugh? Why are you laughing? She said, I didn't laugh. Oh, but you did, though, the angel of Yahweh said. But God had promised Abraham and Sarah that he would make of their offspring a great nation. And then he did. He gave them a son, Isaac, in their old age. God renewed the promise with Isaac. Isaac, in turn, 
got married, had two sons, twin boys, Jacob and Esau. But Jacob was God's choice. Esau was rejected by God. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. A lot of people take that to mean that from the womb, from even before they were born, God loved Jacob and hated Esau. And how can that be? How does God hate anybody? That doesn't seem in keeping with much of our uncareful reading of Scripture, selective reading of Scripture. And yet, that's what it says in the Bible. It says God loved Jacob and he hated Esau. But then the chronology is important. Not all of that chronology is when they were in the womb or before they were born, except that in the mind of God, God knew how Jacob and Esau were going to be. And there's a mystery to that. How can that be? How does that work? I don't know. I don't know. And you don't either. And if you say, well, I know it's not possible. Then I say, well, no, you don't. You don't know that either. (laughs) You don't know that that's not possible, particularly when we're talking about God who is holy and set apart. He has the omnis and you and I have none of those Omnis were finite creatures. He is other. He is holy, set apart, and righteous. So if you say he could have done it, but it wasn't good for him to do, well, then you're wrong there too, because that's not how that works any more than what's possible is dependent on yours and my ability to comprehend. But God affirmed the promise to Jacob in turn, just like God had affirmed the promise to Isaac that he had made to Abraham, God affirmed the promise to Jacob. And Jacob, for his part, had two wives. And then by extension, he took as wives the maidservants of his two wives, two sisters, which generally speaking is something you don't do. You don't take wives as rivals to one another. We see that in the Old Testament law. You don't do that. That's not good form, that's bad form. That's not living with your wife in an understanding way, apparently. But Jacob and his four wives end up churning out 12 sons. Daughters as well, at least one, but 12 sons. And those 12 sons, in due time, get married themselves and have children after them. And then those children grow up and get married and have children and so on and so forth for generations In Egypt, something like 20 generations in Egypt, until God tells Moses, who is an exile, a fugitive, who had killed an Egyptian and then had to flee Egypt, lest he be punished for it. He being a Hebrew, even though he was raised in Pharaoh's court, it was not lawful for him to strike an Egyptian and kill him, apparently in the same way that they had grown accustomed to casually disposing of Hebrews, those Egyptians. But God tells Moses in his exile, go to Pharaoh, tell him, let my people go. And so Moses does. There's a bit of back and forth, a little bit of, well, how's that going to work from Moses to God? But then ultimately he obeys, he believes God, it's credited to him as righteousness. He goes to Pharaoh with his brother Aaron in tow. It should be noted, but he goes to Pharaoh and tells him, let my people go. There are signs and wonders that are performed in Egypt because God hardens Pharaoh's heart and also Pharaoh hardens his own heart against this call, this command. And the nations all hear about it, which was partly the idea. That was actually a large part of the idea 
that God wanted the nations to hear and to see as God made an example out of Egypt. And so he did. And so it was. And so God brought Egypt into a place of being humbled, being brought low. Even though they had been raised up, he brought them low. They were oppressive and unjust and corrupt and disobedient and idolatrous. And he brought them low. And then in due time, you have God bringing Israel by Moses first and then by Joshua to the promised land. And as they cross over the Jordan, they are crossing into the land that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants forever to give to them for an inheritance. Now, let's just talk a little bit about this idea of inheritance. What is it? What is an inheritance anyways? Oxford languages would tell us inheritance is either a thing that is inherited or it's the action of inheriting. So for instance, you might inherit certain traits. You might inherit genetic code from your parents. Your mother gives you some of her genetic code. Your father gives you some of his genetic code. And the genetics combine to express themselves in you. How your hair looks, what color it is, what its consistency is, what its texture is, how your eyes look, their shape and their setting and the color of them, how your jawline looks, whether it's broad or it's narrow or it comes to a point or it's more rounded, more triangular, more square, how tall you are, how et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You inherit genetics from your parents. Well, so also your parents, when they pass on, if you are their heir, if you are their child, then you will inherit their possessions. You'll inherit their wealth. If they have accumulated money or property, land or buildings or companies or prized possessions, let's say works of art or very nice furniture or clothing, or jewelry, or whatever, if you're their heir, then you inherit, you take possession of, you assume, you take over what it is that they are leaving behind. And that's right, and that's proper. Interestingly, just an aside momentarily, inheritance, our English word, is a late Middle English from Anglo-Norman French, inheritance, being admitted as heir, from Old French, inheritor. Nevertheless, there's a lot of talk in Joshua 13 about inheritance. And what's interesting in part is setting aside the strange names and places and people and kingdoms, setting all that aside for a moment. You don't actually have to be an expert in all these things or know where on the map they would have actually been. That's good to know. If you do know that, that's great. If you don't know it, it's good for you to go and find it out and figure it out and study it out and ponder it. But if you don't know any of that, if you don't understand any of that, what you can very easily grasp is that each one of these tribes, and when you subdivide the tribes, each one of the clans that make up a tribe of Israel has an inheritance in this land that was the possession of a different people. Now, just a quick word on this. For all of human history, this people or that people is in the land. They build a city. 
They found a nation. They conquer an empire. They form alliances. They go to war. And the ones who win wars and battles very often end up being new management. The sign above the door changes, so to speak. If we think in corporate terms more easily, it's like when you work for a company and then some other bigger company buys your company. And now next thing you know, you're a subsidiary of that bigger company, or you've just been absorbed. Middle management, upper management for your company, maybe some of them stay around, but most of them get severance packages. Thank you for your service. We've got this. And now you work for that larger company. They bought with their greater wealth, the company you work for. And now you work for that company. That's kind of what it's like when people's get strong and then they go to war and they wage battles and they take over neighboring cities. And sometimes it doesn't happen that there's actually any fighting. Sometimes it's just a sizing up of one another through diplomacy, through trade, cultural exchange, and the weaker recognizes that the stronger would win in a fight if they fought. And so they just are conciliatory. They use entreaties because they are poorer than their neighbor. Next thing you know, they've been absorbed into the larger empire. A polite ask for a sample of earth and water as tribute turns into you now are part of our empire. And increasingly the demands shift in the tone and tenor from being polite to being more forceful if there is some reluctance or holding back, if there is some talk of reasserting independence and saying, I I think we're going to do something different. I don't think we're going to send you earth and water. That's going to be a problem this time around. Go ask our neighbors. Go ask people on the other side of you. We're good. We're going to keep the earth and water for ourselves. And then very often you'll get fighting unless the people who have been subject have indeed grown strong. And if they've grown strong enough and the larger empire has been weakened through infighting and bureaucratic red tape and depravity, if the people become frivolous and not concerned with maintaining what it is that they've built up, well then future generations of the imperial family, the royal family, the bureaucratic state in that country can find that they lose their inheritance. And a similar thing to that also is happening here in Joshua 13, or it's being summarized that there were people who lived in this land and did God promise it to them or did they just move in? Did they just squat? They came in and they set up shop, but it really wasn't theirs. That's one question. Another question is if they moved in and if they did what was evil in the sight of God, and it would have been their land, Sure, they had as much claim to it as anybody, but then they behaved wickedly and they were sexually immoral and they killed their own children as part of worship to demons, demon gods, false gods who were no gods. They worshiped other gods in other ways too, and that was a big problem. They were dishonest, oppressive, malicious, fraudulent, slanderous, inhospitable, in a word, evil. God said, okay, you know what? You're fired. Because remember, the psalmist says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. 
If God says, the earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world, and all its inhabitants, that means regardless of the sign above the door in a particular city, in a particular region, in a particular land, in a particular part of the world, a continent even, regardless of who says this or that belongs to them, it all belongs to God. And if God says, you know what, you're not taking care of business like I want you to, like you know you're supposed to, I'm removing you from a position of authority, who are we to disagree with that? Who are we to find fault with God? You might as well complain when somebody buys a company or they owned it from the beginning and they find out that some frontline manager or some regional manager in the company is just doing whatever. They don't care about policies. They don't care about the rules. They don't care about the regulations. They don't care about the vision of the owner of the company. They're just doing whatever they want, whatever seems good to them. And maybe even siphoning funds from the budget that's supposed to go to operating their branch or their office. When the owner of the company finds out, what do we expect? We expect that they're going to terminate that manager, that supervisor, that employee who was acting presumptuously. And so that also comes into play here too, where regardless of whether God promised it to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or whether other people had any right to live there in the first place other than the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, regardless of who might have been living there prior to the people of Israel coming out of Egypt, coming into the promised land, coming over the river Jordan, westward, it all belonged to God at every moment all along the way. It was all God's the whole time. And so if God said, okay, this is mine and I'm going to set up shop for Israel, for this people, my people, my nation that I'm claiming for myself, everybody else, take note, listen up. I claim this people for my people. I claim this nation to be my nation. I'm going to make them into a nation for you all to see. Who are we to find fault with God? Who are we to complain about that? And also, how often do we leave God completely out of the equation when we're weighing and measuring whether this was good? How often are we asking the question of whether God had the right to say and to promise and to fulfill what he did? All too often, we're thinking in terms of the people involved. And yes, the people can misbehave regardless of what God has promised or commanded, as is evident from these nations being driven out of Canaan. But sometimes people obey God, actually. Let's not miss that. Let's not have such a view of the depravity of man or the sinful nature of man that we don't have a category for righteous behavior and obedience and faithfulness. And moreover, let's make sure that we're not presupposing that our ways are the yardstick, the standard, the rubric, our ways, our thoughts, those are the measure. A lot of that kind of thinking is just plain arrogant and ignorant. A lot of that kind of thinking is very presumptuous. And it might be something we're reading into the text that we would have any right to assess and evaluate these people for making war and winning and taking the spoils. It might be that we're being very arrogant and very presumptuous to say, for instance, as I've been talking quite a lot on this podcast, and I'm probably 
a person lacking in credibility to some for having gone here, but the biblical text goes here. And so if you have a problem with that, well, I think you have a problem with the biblical text, first and foremost, not me. I don't want to have a problem with the biblical text. And if that means you're going to have a problem with me, then so be it. It's regrettable, but on your own head be it. But who are we to sit in judgment over Israel for men taking multiple wives or making war, conquering cities, killing all the inhabitants of those cities, or taking slaves, making slaves out of the people who had lived in those cities? Who are we to sit in judgment? And maybe the answer is, well, we're Christians. We're the saints. We have the whole counsel of God. So we look forward and we see God saying, this is not so good. Okay, but listen, that's the answer to the question. That's the right answer. Let's just make sure we're putting in the right categories. When it's us and our opinions and our feelings, you can have opinions. You can have a feeling about this. You can have a hunch. Even you can suspect that that's not quite the way that it's supposed to be. And then what you should do is not elevate and hold a rather too lofty view of your opinions and your feelings, nor should you just pass on without a comment and just hold on to those, right? All I needed to know was how I felt about this. No, no, study to show yourself an approved workman who need not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, which is to say you can wrongly handle the word of truth. And isn't that how a workman who does need to be ashamed, he should be ashamed of himself because he didn't handle the word of truth correctly. Isn't that how we know when a workman should be ashamed and when he shouldn't, has no need to be ashamed, or when he does have a need to be ashamed? For that matter, let's pause for a moment and let's reflect on some of the tone and tenor of how Jesus refers to the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law in the gospel accounts, and also how the apostle Paul refers to Judaizers, for instance, the super apostles, as they're called in some cases, how Paul even addresses those he loves with a stern rebuke at times. You can't just read it all as softness, gentleness, meekness, humility, as we define humility, misdefining it. The tone and tenor is unmistakably one of shame on you at various points in the gospel accounts and in the Pauline epistles. Shame on you. Why? because you're mishandling the truth, because you have come to this in a presumptuous way, thinking rather too highly of your own opinion, your own feelings, your own judgments, and rather too little of God's. You've come to the biblical text, you've come to the commands of God, the promises of God, the character of God, rather presumptuously, and you have dealt with his word with insufficient care and shame on you. You should be ashamed of yourself. And I think part of what we miss, a large part of what we miss, when we don't think that that's ever appropriate, we don't think that's ever loving, kind, honorable, decent, appropriate for the servant of God to speak in the tone of, part of what we're missing is that it does actually matter how you handle the word of truth. It matters immensely. And if you mishandle the word of truth, if you are careless, if you're slapdash, if you're lazy, if you're frivolous, if you're self-serving about it, there are significant consequences. For one, you may not be free. When you know the truth, Jesus says, you will be free. But if you don't know the truth, and if you tell other people lies, that's the same thing as being enslaved. And that's very serious. When you know the truth, 
you are equipped to do good works. But when you believe lies, then you are set up to be unproductive at best, but actually to do things that are corrupt. If the truth that you think you know or that you confidently proclaim but carelessly handle is not actually the truth, if it's corrupted, well, so also will your practice be corrupted. Just like James says, show me your faith without works, I'll show you my faith by my works, what you actually have faith in at the end of the day will express itself in how you relate, how you behave. If your faith is in the traditions of men, well, then that will work itself out. And it's not to say tradition's always a bad thing, but it's in what order is it a good thing? If it's out of order, if it is the most good thing, the most true thing, the most praiseworthy thing, you have set yourself up for not just being mistaken, you know, oh, oops. No, being ashamed of yourself. You will come to a point at which you should be ashamed of yourself. And if you suppress that, instead of admitting, you know what, I'm sorry, that's embarrassing. Man, well, now you've just hardened your heart. You've just stiffened your neck. You've just decided to be proud and to love pleasure, love yourself rather than loving what is good. It would be good for you to just admit it. Just own the L. Take the loss. It's a sunk cost at this point. One of the pronouncements of judgment that we find in God's word is this interesting turn of phrase as translated into the English, they had forgotten how to blush or they did not know how to blush which is to say that a people was shameless if they didn't know how to blush, if they had forgotten how to blush. Now, we make fun of people in our day. We laugh if they blush, but we actually should be glad. We should be very glad and relieved when people remember how to blush. They know how to blush. There's an innocence to that, which is good, which is right. Now, it's not entirely innocent because if it was appropriate for you to blush, then you've just done something that was not maybe so innocent. Maybe it was unintentional. And that's typically what it is. When people blush, it's typically, oops, my bad. Oi, now I feel foolish. Okay, yeah, maybe you were. Maybe you were. That's okay, right? It's okay. Not okay like keep on being foolish. I don't mean that. But it's okay like it's not the end of the world, all right? It it all works out in the end if you love Jesus Your name is in the book of life, in the book of the Lamb. At the end of the day, it'll all work out. He gives more grace. Don't let this derail you. But it's good if you still remember how to blush. And it's good when people around you still know how to blush. We just want to make sure that we're embarrassed about the right things. We're not embarrassed by God. Oh, God. Oh, why do you have to do these kinds of things? Why why did you have to say that? I'm so embarrassed. Dad, stop. You're embarrassing me. God, stop. You're embarrassing me. What's embarrassing in those kinds of scenarios is our misplaced priorities. Another thing here in Joshua chapter 13 is the land is being conquered, but it still is not fully conquered yet. And so God says to Joshua, you are getting old. (laughs) You have gotten old. You are old, actually. As a matter of fact, you're advanced in years. And it's funny because it starts off. In verse 1, now Joshua was old and advanced in years, and Yahweh said to him, you are old and advanced in years. (laughs) There's a certain redundancy, but then again, it's not, because some of this is in quotations, and some of this is clearly written down by Joshua or whoever picked up the mantle after Joshua. It was the case that Joshua was old. And so God said, 
God said to him, <laughs> you are old. And there remains yet very much land to possess. Now, that's a curious thing, too, because on the one hand, you would think that the ultimate, the penultimate is if Joshua is in charge when they completely take possession, they have finished taking possession of all of the promised land, all of Canaan. They've driven out every last vestige of every people that God said to annihilate and destroy. Maybe that would be the greatest way for Joshua to cap off his legacy, to finish out his life. But you know, something to think about is the thrill of the chase. Something to think about here is what neuroscientists like Andrew Huberman, for instance, like to talk about in their podcasting and their videos that I've watched with regards to dopamine in the brain. Dopamine being this hormone that the body releases that we associate with happiness and God designed it that way. Neuroscientists are not inventing these things. They're just discovering slowly but surely, maybe possibly searching out and understanding, not always understanding how what God has ordered works, why it works. But dopamine, as you or I expect a good thing, like, hey, let's go out for ice cream. At the end of the day, about three o'clock, let's go get ice cream. Coldstone Creamery will be open. They've got some really good ice cream. I've got a coupon. My treat. You say, oh, that sounds exciting, right? And already the dopamine starts to be released. You start to feel happier. You haven't gotten the ice cream. And it might be 9 a.m. You're not even hungry for ice cream right now, but you're expectant, right? You're expecting ice cream at about three o'clock with a friend, maybe. Ideally, it'll be somebody you like. You enjoy being around. You enjoy hanging out with. And so you get closer and closer to that three o'clock time. And what happens in the brain? According to neuroscientists, more and more dopamine is released. And so you are happier and happier. And I think a lot of us will say more and more we are excited as the time draws near, as this is a good thing. But then if something comes in to interrupt, if something derails the plan, the worst possible time is right before, right? Right before you're going to have the ice cream, something comes up, a disappointing interruption, and now we got to cancel plans. You got to cancel plans and the dopamine in the brain actually goes not just down to where it was before your friend suggested, let's go get ice cream at three o'clock. No, no. The dopamine in your brain actually goes down and it overshoots. It shoots down below. So you're actually more unhappy than you were when you first heard that you guys might go and get some ice cream. But then on the flip side, let's say nothing comes up. The most dopamine is going to be right before you actually get the ice cream. The anticipation actually tapers off when you get the ice cream, interestingly. But the peak of satisfaction, happiness, excitement, expectation, the peak of dopamine in relation to that expected thing is right before you actually get it. And so come back now to Joshua being old, advanced in years, there's still a lot of land to be conquered, but that might be for the best in terms of the happiness of Joshua as a individual man, even an old man, that there is still work to do right up until the very, very end. And God is telling him that that's a happy thing. 
actually, particularly if that was his mission, that was his vocation, that was his calling, that was what he was made for, that's what he was doing in service to God and in service to his people. It doesn't get better than that, actually. Right now, for a lot of men in America, specifically, there is no expectation of a good future, of an inheritance. Let's say, for instance, if their parents are still around, there's no expectation that they're going to inherit wealth from their parents when their parents pass on. For that matter, too, looking at the stats, for men who don't have children, there's no expectation that they are going to pass on wealth to their children after them. For those who do have children, unfortunately, a great many have no expectation of being able to pass on wealth to their children because perhaps, for one, they live estranged from the mother of their children, and so that's a sore spot, or they've been divorced. Maybe they never got married, or maybe they got married and they got a divorce, and she took half of everything, which reduced the capacity to accumulate wealth. It destroyed wealth instead of creating wealth and securing wealth. It destroyed wealth, and for that reason also, there's nothing to pass on. My parents got divorced when I was in junior high, and I'm speaking from experience when I say there was so much wealth destroyed, so much time and energy was misplaced, so much momentum lost. I don't anticipate inheriting anything of material value to speak of. And there's a large, large share of my generation that is in exactly the same boat. There's no expectation of inheriting from our parents. Now, in my case, a few years ago, my grandmother, Renu, my mother's mother, passed away, and she actually left everything to myself, my brother, and my first cousins. She left everything to us, in part because someone else in the family, a generation farther up the line, had given an inheritance to my mother and my aunt and my uncle, and it was a sizable inheritance. But when it came to my grandmother passing away, leaving everything to my brother and my first cousins on that side and myself, I remember thinking to myself as I was receiving my inheritance and as I was applying it to trying to just keep our heads above water, and I don't say that to embarrass anybody, by the way, I'm not trying to embarrass anyone, but these are real concrete problems that are interfering with our ability to, our capacity to provide and to have a vision of the good life realized moving forward in community or within the home or within our individual selves. And this is happening more broadly. I bring it up and I tell you this story that is my story because if you have this kind of a circumstance or something even remotely like it, I get it, right? I understand you. I feel you. And I want you to know that. I want you to know I'm not sitting in some ivory tower. These are not platitudes in the abstract because I just enjoy sophistry. No, no. I'm trying to figure out how do I leave an inheritance for my children's children in a way I am not myself going to receive? Is it possible? Can that be done? Can we go to God's word to find sound principles, biblical truth that informs good works, that have a profitable outcome? But I also say these things. I also explain these things because when we're trying to understand why are so many people just giving up hope 
Why are they cynical? Why are they angry? Why are they depressed? Why are they anxious? Why is there a crisis of mental health, as it's being called, where so many children are now coming into emergency rooms in the U.S.? Pediatrician and emergency room physician reports are indicating there are so many children coming into emergency rooms with mental and emotional health problems. The ERs are overwhelmed. They are swamped and they are not set up to handle the mental and emotional health problems. What's that about? That's about the choice and the choices made by their parents and their grandparents and the other older people in the community. A very selfish choice to put their generation first. It was the baby boomers who really put the cherry on the top through the COVID lockdowns. It was the baby boomers and the Gen Xers they had selectively empowered to carry the torch forward, to maintain their vision of the good life, the baby boomers generation vision of the good life. It was the baby boomers who were the most vulnerable, especially if they were fat and sick, out of shape. They were most vulnerable to COVID. If they had comorbidities, COVID was quite probably going to wreck them. And they were so terrified and they were also so selfish. They didn't care what they were doing to their children and their grandchildren. Destroying the capacity to generate wealth and provide for their families as it pertained to the children of the baby boomers, Gen Xers and millennials especially. Also not caring what the effect was mentally, emotionally, spiritually on their grandchildren. The baby boomers' grandchildren are... Gen Z, Gen Alpha, the grandchildren of the baby boomers are not receiving an inheritance from the righteous. A righteous man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. What does an unrighteous man do to his children's children? He uses them up to get the last little bit of enjoyment, just the last little drops. Instead of leaving an inheritance, he extracts, he only takes, or it should be said, based on the track record, based on the history of the baby boomers generation, how many of their children they aborted in Gen X and how they overprotected, they smothered the millennials, like my generation, based on how they taxed and spent, or when they couldn't tax enough, they just printed money and devalued the currency and ruined our good name abroad and spread false ideas about God and man, promoting gender theory, promoting critical race theory at home and abroad. It's the baby boomers who have demonstrated that they are not the righteous who leave an inheritance for their children's children. And here I'm speaking in the macro, I'm speaking in the general, I'm speaking generationally. There are definitely, and we should be thankful to the good Lord above, there are definitely exceptions within generations. I don't want to give the wrong impression. I've listened back through some of my episodes where I talk about this, and you need to hear it. You need to understand this in order to think rightly. There's so much flack that the millennials get, Gen Z gets. There's a lot of criticism that's directed at the younger generations. Yeah, who raised these younger generations? What about that? What conditions were they raised in? What values were they raised with? What examples were they given to follow? How about that? Ooh. But I don't mean to suggest that everybody in the baby boomers generation is like this. That's not fair. That's not charitable. That's not right. But generally speaking, we're going to talk about attributes, characteristics, 
the boomers were the ones who aborted more of their own children than any generation in American history. Tens and tens and tens of millions. Essentially a holocaust of our own unborn innocent children is the fault of the boomers. And they, while there is still time, at the end of their lives, they really should repent of that because there's a holy and righteous God they're going to stand before and have to give an account for these things too. But then Gen X. Gen X is a lot smaller than it would have been, much, much smaller, and they were the lost generation, Howen Strauss would say. They're a lot smaller, and what's left of them after so much abortion, so much contraceptive prevention, so much neglect for those who even were born, and kind of raised, they were latchkey kids, where they've been handed the reins of power in institutions because now the boomers want to retire and travel the country and live it up while they still can. The Gen Xers are always checking behind the scenes with the boomers. Hey, is this right? Does this look right to you? Is this okay? Should I do this? Should I do that? They're so eager to please the boomers. They want so badly to get that affirmation, which has just been selectively metered out. They crave that attention and that affirmation from the boomers. Meanwhile, the millennials, who are significantly larger, as far as cohorts go, we're a significantly larger generation than Gen X. The millennials, like myself, we got started trying to work and earn and save and buy and invest in homes, property, right as the first wave of consequences for the irresponsibility, the frivolity, the self-indulgence of the boomers was hitting. 2008, look it up. Here we are again, 12 years later, 2020 and counting, the lockdowns, the mandates, mask up, social distance, don't go to church. Your kids can't go to school. But if they do the remote learning thing, we're going to fill their heads with radical leftist indoctrination. It's like a dementiatic. It's like an Alzheimer's patient is the one giving the talking points behind the scenes to the public school teachers unions and the corporate news media. And you know what? Right up until it all well and truly implodes beyond repair, the Gen Xers who play middle management are going to just keep on doing what the baby boomers give them. They'll filter it out a little bit. They'll try and clean it up just like the handlers for President Biden will try to clean up and do damage control on his gaffes. Yeah, the Gen Xers will definitely do that for as long as they can. And then when the boomers are gone, we're going to have to have a conversation. Gen X and the millennials, we're going to have a conversation. I predict when that happens, when the boomers are completely out of the picture in terms of making these determinations or maintaining the status quo, I predict Gen X is going to have little pockets of nastiness, meanness, cruelty, where without the guidance of the boomers, they act out, they lash out with resentment that's been there for years and just kind of bubbling below the surface, but they had to keep it in check. They're going to lash out at the millennial generation, and that's going to earn a pretty fiery response from the millennials, if it's not already. But I think also, too, 
you're going to have little pockets of Gen Xers who they've been so used to getting guidance, getting decisions, ultimately from the boomers. They're going to be saying to the millennials, hey, what do you guys think? You got any ideas? I'm kind of stuck here. What should we do? And at that point too, and I think for very, very different scenarios to be so seemingly opposite, I think all of the above is going to come together in the millennials, having the shackles off, getting a chance to do the heroic thing. Will we? If we don't, I don't trust that the Gen Xers will. But if we don't, as millennials, it's going to have to be Gen Z and Generation Alpha that cobble together some new political institutions in the ashes and rubble left behind because it's going to be messy. It's going to be a real, real mess. And that doesn't mean, by the way, when I say it's going to be a real mess, I don't mean that we should abandon hope. I don't mean that. I think sometimes I miscommunicate when I'm talking like this and people hear what I don't intend to be coming across, that you should just throw in the towel. There's too much of that mindset and we need to honestly remember how to blush about it because it's shameful. It's unmanly. It's unmanly to abandon hope. Why do I say that? To abandon hope is shameful because it indicates a lack of faith, a lack of trust in God and the goodness of God and the promises of God and the purposes of God and the character of God. Essentially, to abandon hope is to admit that our equation has not even factored God in, which is how we got into the problem, the trouble in the first place in many cases. Not all, but in many, many cases. Somebody did not factor in God's commands, his promises, his goodness, his purposes, and so they behaved very badly. They behaved very poorly, and sometimes large groups of people do this. Sometimes institutions do this. Sometimes whole peoples and nations and cultures do this. And that's what we're seeing right now. And yet, are we any better? If we say we believe these things and we've abandoned hope, our hearts have grown cold. We no longer feel a warmth when we talk about God. We no longer feel any warmth towards one another. Make no mistake, there is good news. But the good news is not so fragile that you can't talk about the real problems. I think that's another consequence. That's really, unfortunately, what we've inherited from previous generations that made no-fault, easy divorce, serial monogamy, infidelity, free love, substance abuse, self-indulgence, fraud, deceit, chicanery, superficiality into their lifestyles. We've inherited an unwillingness and a certain fragility that prevents us from being able to talk about problems with each other in a productive way. Today marks one week since the Welfare of the City Project had our first forum. And yesterday morning, I had the privilege, I had the honor, I had the great pleasure of sitting down with the other members of the steering committee to discuss how did it go? What have we heard? What kind of feedback have we gotten? What should we tweak and retool and do differently next time? What are we going to talk about next time? Who's going to do the talking? And it should be rotational, it seems to us, seems to me, certainly. It should be rotational. The Welfare of the City Project is not the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show, although I hope that the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show is 
conducive to the welfare of the city. I hope that I'm seeking the welfare of the city, but I need other men to be involved in these things and to be double-checking my math, just like I think they need me on occasion to be double-checking their math. And I think other men should be adopting this mindset. I'm trying to set an example here. And I'm trying to be honest and say, hey, we've got some real problems. On an individual basis, I know it's not my imagination. You can't spin the stats. I know that the economy is in worse shape than it was four years ago, eight years ago, 12 years ago, 16 years ago. How do I know that? Because my wife comes back from the grocery store and she shows me the receipts so that I can write them into our Excel CV that I built to keep track of our money, to keep track of our bills and the income and the outgoing, the debits and the credits. I see those numbers that she brings back. I'm the one who pays the bills. I pay the utilities. I pay the rent. I know that our rent is going up. The house is not getting better and better with age. It's not a fine wine. Why is our rent going up? As though major improvements have been made to the property. It's in worse shape due to the effects of time on the cheap materials that houses are so often built with in recent decades. It's in worse shape because things wear out with use. Our electricity is not of a better quality. It's of a worse quality, arguably, a less reliable quality. And so just to give you a quick anecdote, not so you feel sorry for me, but so that you understand I get it. Not so you can find an excuse to write me off and wave me off. No, no. Neither so that you can just feel bad. I'm not trying to make you feel bad, but I'm trying to convince those who are living very comfortably that there is a need. If you love me, if you love my wife and my children, you need to care about what's being decided at a high level that affects families just like ours, even if it's not affecting you. Let's suppose some of the people who are listening, they get their electric bill. And they're actually being paid because they built solar panels, put them on the roof, got it all set up years ago. They had bought a house and they took some of the equity, which is actually, when you look at home values, so-called, over time, it's actually the result of an artificial constraining of the supply of homes due to regulation and zoning. Thomas Sowell has a book all about this, by the way. But they took some of the equity because they had bought a home and then it appreciated in value, so-called, greatly due to deflation of the supply of houses relative to the demand, also inflation of the money supply relative available goods and services in the economy. That's how it works. They took some of the equity, which is what we call in this context, the difference between what you owe on the house and what you could sell it for if you were to list it. They took some of the equity out and they put solar panels on the roof. And they put a battery system, a charging system, and they also arranged it with their utility company to where when the solar panels produce more electricity than is being used, they sell power back. And maybe it's not much, but it's certainly, if it's even $2 a month, it's certainly a lot less of a cost for those listeners than the, in some cases, $400 plus that I am paying for electricity in the summer, if I want my pregnant wife and my young children and my teenage boys to have air conditioning as they're homeschooling, as they're at home, cultivating their minds, reading great books. You should know 
that I don't set policy. I'm talking about it because I think we need to get engaged, but I don't set policy for what percentage of the electrical grid is going to be supplied by hydro and wind and solar. We all, if we're passive, if we're inactive, if we are checked out, disengaged, apathetic, self-serving, indifferent, hopeless, or corrupt, we all together help to set and establish what the policy is going to be that makes the electric bill go up and up and up. And guess what? When the cost of energy goes up, the cost of everything goes up. So at the same time, as corrupt individuals are misappropriating funds, which the government has access to because they tax us or they print the money or they take money out of this or that fund and they reallocate it over here. At the same time as our money is being given to foreign governments, foreign peoples, or corporations who will advance certain social engineering projects, progressive in nature, typically, at the same time as that is happening, you also have increasingly this sense in many young men in particular that I will receive no inheritance and I will have nothing to pass down to future generations except for apologies. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that the world is the way that it is. I'm sorry that this is a mess that you're going to have to sort out. That's the position that the millennial generation in particular has been put in. And only all the more Until we start to change these things and reform, only all the more for Gen Z and Gen Alpha, and if the world stands, future generations after them. It's an artificial problem that a combination of apathy and self-absorption and godlessness has created. But consequently, it's a problem that actually loving God and our neighbor would go a long way to resolving. It's a problem that loving what is true and what is good instead of just loving pleasure and ourselves would go a long ways to solving. It's a problem that being engaged, interested, invested, involved, even just attentive would go a long ways to solving. Because a lot of these corrupt people who misallocate, who behave in malicious ways, or they extort, or they bribe, or they blackmail, or they mismanage, A lot of these folks, they do so because they also get the impression that nobody's paying attention. Nobody's watching. Nobody cares. And if there are good ones, right, if there are good managers, if there are people who are being faithful, who are doing good work, and they never get praised for it, they never get affirmed for it, they never get thanked for it, they never get appreciated, nobody's paying attention to them either, what happens? They grow weary in doing what is good. And so if you and I, if we're not paying any attention, we have no idea who to affirm and who to thank that they would continue on, keep on doing what is good. We have no idea, no clue. And let's say we just thank everybody. Well, now we've done it. If we thank everybody, we're thanking also the corrupt ones, the lazy ones, There are a few things more frustrating, and I'm speaking from experience as a working man right now, but we all have work to do. There are a few things more frustrating, more aggravating than when you do your level best and you get after it and you put in long hours and you work hard, diligently, carefully, you're very honest, scrupulously, 
even to a fault, and someone who is lazy, who is constantly blame-shifting and making things up, making excuses, lying about why they haven't done this, they haven't taken care of that, they haven't attended to this, they haven't called these people back, they haven't looked at such and such, when they get the exact same raise that you did, when they get the exact same thank you, whoo, man, is that discouraging? Is that demoralizing? For the people who work at these utilities companies or these grocery store chains or department store chains or who work in our government at whatever level, for the people who work in media to bring us the information, to report in a factual way what is happening that pertains to us, that is our business, that we should know about, we should do something about, but maybe we'll have to talk it out in order to figure out what we do. For those people who are doing well, for us to not thank them, we are contributing to their growing weary in doing what is good. That's part of the reason why you should honor them. If you want to live a quiet, peaceable life, you should honor those who are doing a good job in positions of authority, but you have to be paying attention. And when you pay attention, you won't always find that everybody is doing a good job. And it's so uncareful. It's so unwise to have this default where we can only say positive things or don't say anything at all. If we look to the job that people are doing and they're doing a poor job, we should not be saying, hey, great, keep it up. We should be asking some questions like, hey, I noticed that you have this mistake here. You have this typo there. I noticed that this does not seem to add up. I'm a little concerned that this has not been attended to. Can you go into why that is? Do you need something from us? Even just asking the question makes so many Christians who have completely checked out, so much of the church that has completely checked out, and they've spiritualized it in no small part because of tax status. Churches wanting to maintain a certain tax status that's contingent on not getting into any of this. They stay so well clear and they spiritualize it, but it's really about being able to keep money. And the partiality is unbearable because when you get to talking about tithing and offerings, what will they do? They'll say, ah, in the Old Testament, it's commanded, right? The Levites lived off of the tithes and the offerings. And you say, yeah, but the Levites were also not told you can't speak about, you can't talk about, you can't get into the particular sins of the leaders of the people or of the people if they're political in nature so-called or else we're going to withhold the money from you that you live on. That's exactly the condition that's been set up for the American church. You stay out of getting specific about potential corruption in your city, state, country. You stay out of that or we're going to tax you, which is to say we're going to punish you financially. That was an LBJ project, by the way, right along with the Great Society, which made the U.S. government into the sugar daddy for so many unwed mothers and really incentivized women having children out of wedlock, not getting married or else getting divorced, which makes them free agents for rich, powerful men who have means, keeps them available. It keeps those men in positions where they can get whatever they want from these young women. And not have to pay the consequences, actually, as a matter of fact, also. It should have been the clue. When LBJ's building is where the Department of Education is housed, and that happened under George W. Bush, oh, by the way, that the Department of Education was upgraded from being in somebody else's, some other department's building 
to getting their own building, and it's the LBJ building, you know quite a lot, actually, about what's broken with the Uniparty. The establishment of both parties, shaking hands, kissing babies, cutting deals behind the scenes to look the other way as their extended families and their friends go and vacuum up the money and redistribute it. When they get elected, they redistribute it. That's why the money is offered up in the first place. Exorbitant speaking fees, buying and selling art, so-called modern art. It's not really art. It's crap. You're just telling us that it's art, like the emperor who has no clothes story. You're telling us that it's art so that we are all the more wowed and also so confused that we don't look into what this art really symbolizes. Political currency, the trading of favors. It's a token, just like in a board game. It's a token. Yeah, that painting looks like garbage. You didn't pay millions of dollars for that because you want the painting. You paid millions of dollars for that because there's going to be a trading of favors. And this will be the reminder, the symbol, kind of like a wedding ring, a little bit is a symbol, kind of like a contract, a little bit. You'll know what it means. They'll know what it means if you have them over and that painting is hanging prominently in the room that you sit down to discuss things in. Another thing that distresses me here, and let's be careful as we handle the word of truth here and what I'm about to say, but a video was sent to me and I love Jordan Cooper. Jordan B. Cooper, Lutheran minister, Systematic theologian. He has the Justin Sinner podcast, great YouTube videos on lots of topics. Very thoughtful guy. I like him a lot. I enjoy listening to him. And I enjoyed the video generally, but sometimes I get frustrated at things that are not said because it's like, oh man, but uh, why, why don't you factor this into your treatment of this topic? Maybe it's a blind spot. Maybe I'm supposed to factor it in. And so here we go. J.P. Chavez, my neighbor two houses down, sent me a video of Jordan B. Cooper making the case for the Christian gentleman. And I watched this yesterday and I enjoyed the video and I found it very thought-provoking. But he talks about opera and he talks about high culture and how traditionally, historically, it's been the aristocracy in a society. It's been the nobility in a society who helped to sponsor the high art. They make sure Someone is painting great painting. Someone is sculpting great sculptures. Someone is writing great works of music to be performed for future generations. Patrons of the arts are those who have the leisure time to actually consume and ponder and appreciate art. And to some extent, they have the free time because they're the kind of person who likes to think about transcendental things things that last, things that have value, things that accord with what is true and good and beautiful. But sometimes, and this is something I didn't really hear Jordan B. Cooper get into, and I think it's unfortunate, but I hope to rectify it. And hopefully also everyone will forgive me and not think me ungentlemanly. Sometimes you have the people with a lot of money having become very corrupt, and the kind of art that they sponsor is as corrupt as they are. And so there's a little bit of talk in Jordan B. Cooper's video about pop music, pop art, pop culture being the opposite of high culture. And even folk art, he says, has a better shelf life than pop culture. But pop culture is purely entertainment. And let me ask you, 
where does this pop culture come from in the first place, if not from very wealthy, very unscrupulous people in many cases having decided this is how you re-engineer society. This is how you carry out the behavioral economist's eugenicist Darwinian vision at scale. This is the practical side of Edward Bernays' work, pop culture, like vaccinating the mind of man, the heart of man, the soul of man against godliness, against wisdom, against freedom even. The lyrics of so many songs that are popular, so-called, but really made popular because the people who own the record companies and the distribution chains, the people who own the radio stations and the TV stations have decided this is what needs to be popular next. And we say, well, this is just junk. Yeah, but that's what they think of you. They think that you like junk. They think that you are a shallow person, a stupid person, an unwise person, a foolish, simple person, and they want to make money from you, but then they also want to engineer your choices. Unless you think that I'm just making this up. I've read Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals. If you haven't, you don't know how true the things I'm saying are. In their own words, they attest to this being their outlook. I've read Nudge by Cassar Sunstein and Richard H. Thaler. I've read Edward Bernays' Propaganda. I get it. Most of you haven't. But if you had, you would know that I'm not making this up. This is not conspiracy theory. This is, in fact, a conspiracy to brainwash us, to make us dumb. I've read John Taylor Gatto's Weapons of Mass Distraction. The public schools, as he explains, if you won't take it from me, as he explains, the public schools were designed to make you stupid and superficial and godless. Pop culture is just an extension of that. It's just an additional expression of that same contempt for you as a person. It's the social Darwinists, the eugenicists, the progressives, in many cases, Marxists, the globalists, having decided the best thing, the vision of the good life, is they play games with your heart and your mind and your very soul, and they act as gods. When George Soros explains in an interview, without reservation, that he has something of a God complex, and it used to bother him, it used to really worry him that maybe he was unwell, until he embraced it and, and started living it out, until he started actually acting like a God, behaving like a God, it really bothered him. And now he's come to terms with it. Now he's okay with it. Yeah, I am kind of a God, aren't I? When he says that out in the open, and you realize who he pals around with, who he funds, who he supports, who he subsidizes, understand this is a big part of how we got to now, economically, politically, socially. When district attorneys are bought and installed because the people of the community are not paying attention and they won't listen, they're stiff-necked, superficial, stupid with regards to their civic engagement because they were made to be, they were set up to be. That was the intention. It's not a bug. It's a feature of the kind of education they received, the way that the corporate news media gives them so-called current events in short bursts, selectively edited to entertain, but not really to inform, not really to empower. When you realize that George Soros 
has been buying district attorneys for the express purpose of halting the prosecution of criminals for the advancement of social justice in cities across the U.S., and that crime as a result is skyrocketing because criminals are empowered to break the law again and again and again. The defund the police thing, maybe has lost support, and we don't call it that just like global warming, lost support because, hey, wait a second. Some of what you're calling global warming is not actually warmer temperatures. They changed it. They said, well, we should probably call it climate change. That's what Al Gore went to a TED Talk and said some years after an inconvenient truth. We should call it climate change because that's going to be easier to market. It's less likely to get pushed back on. And he said, he bragged in TED Talks that I watched and that I wrote about on the blog at On the Rocks and have talked about in this podcast. Al Gore said flat out, we need to be buying up as many 30-second soundbite advertising slots as we can online and in traditional media. When you're buying up 30-second soundbites and you're just playing them all day, every day for years and years and years to people who are experts on their feelings and very little else, and the vision of the good life that's been presented to them is show up for work on time, collect your paycheck, don't be homeless, don't do drugs unless they're legal, in which case make sure the government gets the taxes for them. Don't get married. Have fun. That's what it's called. Have fun. Yeah, there's another word that starts with F that people actually mean, and it's fornicate. Don't get married. You're so young. No, just stay in school. Go get a job. Have fun for a few years. Figure out who you are. Yeah, fun is a euphemism here for fornicate in all too many cases, because what's prioritized is making money. It's prestige, not even for that generation, but for their parents and for their grandparents. Their grandparents and their parents want them to go to college so that their parents and their grandparents, when they go to the Christmas party, when they hit the golf course, they can brag about Johnny and Susie getting some high-powered degree from a good university so they can go get a high-paying job where not only will they reflect well on themselves, but maybe more importantly, they'll reflect well on their parents and their grandparents. And some of this is okay. Filial piety and having a certain pride in your family, some of that's okay. But insofar as it's all been mixed up with leftist indoctrination, propaganda, brainwashing, social engineering, the eugenics movement, progressivism, liberal theology, feminism, the breakdown of the family, insofar as these are all fellow travelers with the destruction of the United States of America happening before our eyes, when we glibly say, you know what, I don't want to get into all that. On the one hand, what we're saying is, I really don't care what my responsibility is. My definition of my own affairs is I keep my lawn mowed. I don't make waves at work. That's a good testimony. I don't ever have anybody upset with me. That's how I know I'm a good person. That's how I know I'm a good Christian. Nobody's ever upset with me for anything. I never rock the boat. I never challenge anything. I always just do what I'm told. I'm always pleasant. I'm always nice. Like the 11th commandment, according to Vodi Bakum in the American church is thou shalt be nice. Thanks, Phil Vischer. Thanks, VeggieTales. Thou shalt be nice. I didn't remember anything else. I remember that. What's lost in all of the above is that every single tribe of Israel 
has an inheritance. Every last one, even the Levites. Now, what it says is they weren't given an inheritance from Moses or from Joshua, but that's because God was their inheritance. Now, just think with me for a moment. One out of 12 tribes had God as their inheritance. And now we're to the point that the American church is content and stubbornly insistent that everybody be content in far too many cases with no Christian children or grandchildren having an inheritance. Or maybe, just maybe, one in 12 American children and grandchildren will have an inheritance. And by this, I mean they'll inherit property or wealth that they can then use to take care of their families. They can nurture, they can steward, they can pass on to their children after them. If one out of 12 children and grandchildren will receive any kind of an inheritance whatsoever, and the other 11 will pay half their money, half their income in rent perpetually, getting married maybe in their mid-30s at this rate. Right now, the average is 30 years old. Right now, the average is they have one or maybe two children, and then they're done. And the exact thing that they say is, yeah, I think we're done. Yeah, we're going to be done after this one, after one or two. When that's an economic reality that they cite in most cases, or they say, I'm so busy, I'm working three jobs. That again is an economic reality that they're citing. And then the church only knows how to spiritualize the internal world in far too many cases, but cannot bring itself to look at what God's word says about not just stewarding money on an individual basis. Dave Ramsey, thank you so much for telling us all. It's basically a sin for us to take on any debts. But then where is the engagement with our members of Congress? Where is the engagement with the president of the United States? Where's the engagement with the bureaucracies and our national debt? You know, what's curious, and my wife pointed this out to me this week as I was talking with her a little bit about debt. She said, well, you know, it's not technically a sin because I asked her, I said, is it a sin, do you think, for a Christian to have debt? She said, well, no, there's no command against it. I said, well, there are passages, there are verses definitely that warn us about being a borrower or a lender, repaying everything that you borrow, not taking out debt being a slave to the one who loans to you. There are verses about that. And she said, well, yeah, but there are also there are also verses about how debts should be discharged or interest or et cetera, et cetera. There are also verses with regards to money and finances and the economy. There are also verses about unequal weights and measures. There are also verses about a workman being worthy of his hire, not withholding wages from someone who works for you. There are also verses that talk about not oppressing those who are poor, those who are widows or who are orphans, speaking up for those who are being oppressed. There are also verses that talk about not just saying to a brother who you see is hungry or thirsty or naked or homeless, be warmed and filled. And you know, that really got me thinking. That got me thinking about how this is another category of partiality that we find in the church. When it comes to gender, for instance, we find that a lot of time is dedicated to upbraiding the men in the church, and little to no time is spent addressing the sins that are particular to women. That's partiality. Also, interestingly, a lot of time and attention is spent 
addressing the sins that are particular to those who are under authority, those who are poor. Very little to no attention is paid by the American church to the sins that are particular to the rich. Certain proclivities, certain temptations that are common to the rich. But what will you hear instead? You'll hear, oh, if you're an American, you are the rich in terms of the whole world. Now listen, listen, listen. Maybe you grew up affluent. Maybe the people you pal around with now are affluent. Maybe the people who get your time and attention, who have the smiling, shiny faces, they're always wearing nice new clothes and driving nice new cars and living in nice new homes. And they're always unflapped, unflappable and unflapped because they have the material wherewithal to deal with certain things. Try that line with the homeless guys living under the bridge. On our way to church, we pass right by them. We see them, sometimes sleeping in the tent. Are they rich just because they're Americans? And you might say, oh, they chose to do drugs, drink alcohol, engage in criminal behavior, be antisocial. They made choices. Yes, but yes, yes, yes. So also the rich make choices. So also those who are well-connected politically make choices. And we find this in God's word that every one of the 12 tribes, including Levites, had an inheritance from God. In the case of the Levites, he was their inheritance. But that was the exception rather than the rule. And why have we turned it into trying to spiritualize every man jack in the church being content with God is your portion and only God is your portion. You shouldn't need a physical inheritance. Okay, if that's what it is, I want to be content with whatever lot has been assigned to me. But how much of the way that it is is free of moral content in the way that you seem to be implying? And why, if we're talking about spiritual condition, why are we not more concerned about the spiritual condition of those who are fat and sassy and arrogant and oppressive and unjust and fraudulent and cruel and slanderous and extortioners and malicious? Why are we more concerned about their spiritual condition? Why are we always so concerned about the poorer and their spiritual condition? And for that matter, going back to Jordan B. Cooper, why are we not more interested in how the rich have this responsibility to sponsor the arts? And so why are they sponsoring? Why are they patronizing pop culture when it looks the way that it does? Why is the lecturing always reserved for those who are consuming pop culture? Why is the lecturing not just as much directed at those who are patronizing pop culture, as in funding it, as in having it generated and making sure that it does not have to compete for airtime, for views, with, let's say, for instance, work by the likes of Oliver Anthony. There's a partiality here that is very unoriginal. It happened in Russia, by the way, that a lot of the Russian Orthodox Church showed partiality towards the aristocracy over and against the serfs. And at a certain point, after so many generations of being neglected or abused by turn with a two-tier justice system, the aristocracy in Russia and the Eastern Orthodox Church running interference for the aristocracy in Russia started to feel bad in significant quantities for the serfs. But by then too, yeah, you know what? A lot of these serfs 
were just not good people. They were bad people. Their being poor did not make them good people. They were bad people, corrupt. And yet they'd been put on this pedestal because the aristocracy had been allowed to become so corrupt, so self-indulgent, so capricious, so cruel, that as, as bad as the serfs seemed, there were a lot of aristocrats. There were a lot of people from wealthy families who were looking around and they're like, man, we are bad people. And the serfs surely must be better than we are. But wait a second, wait a second. Why wasn't the lesson that <laughs> you should stop being bad people? Stop putting the serfs on a pedestal, just like before you were putting the aristocrats on the pedestal. Start calling all men alike to repent of their sins instead of letting it all go to pot, letting it all come to ashes and ruins. There's a godlessness to what even led up to the Bolshevik Revolution on all sides in Russia. The godlessness didn't come into the equation with the October Revolution. The godlessness was already there, and then the Bolshevik Revolution was just the crescendo of what had been building for quite some time. So also in the U.S., there are so many who are going to be shocked if we don't repent, if we don't turn from our sins and seek the Lord's face. There are so many who are going to be shocked because they've been living in this little bubble. They're set for life. Their vision of the good life is to only hang out with other people who are set for life. And those who struggle, those who fall on hard times, those who are in difficult circumstances, what do we say? We say, well, they just didn't manage their money well. They should have gotten along better with people. And by that, we mean they should have not made waves, questioned anything, disagreed with anything, contradicted anything. If someone reacted badly to an entirely just and entirely fair, entirely valid, entirely necessary difference of opinion that they stated, we look at the consequences and then we reverse engineer that it must have been the fault of the one who did the objecting. We don't have a category anymore for those who suffer for righteousness sake, in part because we've been so addicted to pleasure and we've spiritualized our own addiction to pleasure. But then when those who are suffering say, I'm in a bad way, the best we can do is five bucks. Maybe we enjoy, by contrast, for a brief time, that feeling of being so convicted. It was super good and so convicting. And then we're right back to checking out, being passive, being idle, being indifferent, being lovers of pleasure, lovers of self instead of lovers of what is good. Doesn't it become my business when I have children, whether my children will get an inheritance? Doesn't it become my business whether my children's children will receive an inheritance? It's heads I win, tails you lose in all too many cases in the American church. Because if you say, hey, this is a real problem, it's not a problem at all as long as the people you're talking to who have the means don't want to be bothered. Yeah, they're busy. And as long as they have institutional authority and you don't, well then, it's just not going to be on the agenda. Just not a priority. They'll say, I don't have time, but what they really mean is, it's just not that important to me. I was really busy. Yes, you were. You were indeed. And I'm sure every last one of those other things that you were doing, you were attending to, I'm sure every last one of those other things was more important to you than what I was asking you to pay attention to. And why I'm sure of that is because if it were otherwise, one of those other things, maybe multiple of those other things, you would have moved to a different time slot or you would have had it wait until tomorrow. But no, 
No. I don't have time is actually a statement of priorities. It's not a statement of fact. I don't have time. That's exactly what the supposedly good people who passed by on the other side in the parable of the Good Samaritan said. I don't have time. Who was being a good neighbor to that man who was beaten and left for dead after being robbed? The Samaritan. Samaritan's theology was not held in high esteem. His practice towards God was not held in high esteem. He was a good neighbor in a way that the supposedly righteous, I can't possibly be bothered, I'm on my way to do holy things, characters weren't. Plain and simple, they weren't. In closing, we need to stop already with spiritualizing a hands-off, self-serving approach to stewardship. We need to stop already with spiritualizing neglect, spiritualizing abuse. A man who does not provide for the needs of his own household is worse than an unbeliever. Isn't it my business? Isn't it your business, Christian, if there are husbands and fathers in our town, in our county, in our state, in our nation who are trying very hard and they're holding down two or three jobs, working themselves to death to provide for the needs of their own family, especially members of their own household, but it's increasingly difficult for them to do so. Isn't it our business if we are electing or holding in office or leaving unquestioned, unexamined people who make decisions that make it harder and harder, if not impossible, for men to have a good conscience, to get rest, to be able to pass an inheritance down to their children and their children's children? It mattered to God that the tribes of Israel and their clans and their households would have an inheritance. Is there any reason to believe it has stopped mattering to God? This question of being an heir, humanly speaking, I think not. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. It is a Sunday morning. It's time for me to take my family to church here shortly. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.